So it's not about getting new information as much as it is about applying what we already know. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. Now, I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not, but I was talking to Michael before the program. And I said to him, I said, you know, tell me a bit about the group. He said, hey, this is FLCMA. And I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, the group you're about to speak to? He goes, let me tell you a bit about them. He said, they're smart. I said, that's good. He said, they're laid back, they're fun, and they like to laugh. I said, excellent. He said, they're good looking. Mm, okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I said, so how can I create maximum value for the time I'm here? He said, your job is simple. He said, it's, you know, the end of the first day, people are a little mentally tired. He said, make them laugh, people like to laugh. I said, I can do that. He said, but, you know, it's educational, so make them think. I said, that's fair. He said, but, but make, it, make it relevant professionally and personally. I said, okay. He said, you know, while you're at it, you know, like motivate them. I said, uh-huh. He said, inspire them. I said, sure. He said, change their lives. I said, got it. Anything else? He said, yeah, make it interactive. I said, why not? And he said, and you have like an hour and 15 minutes. So, Michael, if you're okay with it, I'm going to start off with the interactive part, and then we'll move on to some content. Excellent. Everyone, please do what, exactly what I'm doing. Put your hands out like this. Now bring your hands in. Pinch your nose with your index fingers. And just pull your hands apart. <laughs> Some of you got stuck. <laughs> Try that one more time. Right here. Do exactly what I'm doing. You got it. Now bring your hands in. Pinch your nose with your index fingers. And pull your hands apart. <laughs> Some of you still got stuck. <laughs> Michael, they're not as smart as you said. <laughs> okay, backup plan, something totally different and starts off the same. Something totally different and starts off the same. Just like that, perfect, so your thumbs are down, you got it. All I want you to do now is just pull your hands up like this. Work with me, folks, here we go. You still did. Oh, you got it. Okay, all I want you to do now is just pull your hands up like this. This is going to be a long hour and 15 minutes. Okay, wait, one more, just to make sure the juices are flowing. We're going to play a little game that's based on the childhood game Simon Says. Now, I'm not going to come up here and insult your intelligence and play Simon Says, but since the game is based on the childhood game Simon Says, I'm going to remind you how to play Simon Says for those who may have forgotten. Simon Says works like this. If I say Simon Says to do something and you do it, you're fine. If I don't say Simon Says to do it, you do it, you're out, and you sit down just like you are now. Does everybody understand? Good. Like I said, I'm not going to insult your intelligence and play Simon Says, because quite simply, <laughs> my name isn't Simon. My name is Sanjay. We're going to play a little game called? Sanjay Says is totally different from Simon Says. Sanjay says works like this. If I say Sanjay says to do something and you do it, you're fine. If I don't say Sanjay says to do it and you do it, you're out and you sit down just like you are now. See how one game is far more complicated than the other. So if I'd said Sanjay says do this, would you do it? If I'd said Sanjay says do this, would you do it? If I said do this, would you do it? You guys know how to play. Let's start. Everyone, please stand up. If you stood up, you're out. Sanjay didn't say. Wow. 
That right there was the quickest game of Sanjay says ever. How many people did not fall for that? You're out now. All right, you know, the interactive part's just clearly not working. Let's just move on to some content. What did I just do? I just got you guys to do three silly things. We did two hand things, and then we followed it up with this Sanjay Says game. But I got you to do it for a very specific reason. Before we did the hand things, I gave you a very specific set of instructions. My instructions were, do exactly what I'm doing. And you did exactly what I did, but you got dramatically different results. Why? And the answer is really simple. The answer is, you didn't do exactly what I did. I mean, you thought you did. We broke it up into little baby steps. You tried to emulate what I was doing, but ultimately, you did something differently, and you got a different result. As human beings, we do this. As business professionals, we do this. As club management, we do this. We look at other organizations, other groups, other family dynamics, and they're going, hey, they got a Twitter page, I got to get a Twitter page. Hey, they got a video, I got a video. Hey, they do this, I do this. And the problem is, you're looking at a three-dimensional model, you're carving off a two-dimensional piece of it, and you're expecting the same result. You're almost setting yourself up for failure. Then we moved on to play the Sanjay Says game, and you all know the rules, but you still get caught. Why? Because having the rules, having the information, having the knowledge on its own is not enough. Knowledge isn't power, applied knowledge is. In fact, I come from a belief that says this. By the time we are mature functioning adults, and I'm not picking an age, because some people are there at age 12, and some people aren't quite there at 50, <laughs> and some of you work for them, but by the time we are mature functioning adults, we have all the skills and ability we could possibly need to be as successful as we want, in any area of our lives. So it isn't skills or ability that hold us back, but there are two things that do. What are they? Number one is an issue of perception. It's a belief system. And number two is we don't act on what we already know. Number one is an issue of perception, belief system. Oh, poor me. Oh, no, the economy is lousy. Oh, there's new regulations and rules. Oh, I'm just big boned. <laughs> or number two, we don't act on what we already know. How many people know the McDonald is not the healthiest food choice you could make? How many people have eaten at McDonald's in the last six months? So it's not about getting you information as much as it is about applying what we already know. And given the limited time we have today, I'm going to focus more on that second piece, which is how do we apply what we already know? Uh, and as you heard in my introduction, I'm known by this thing called the 10-80-10 principle, which is going to be the backdrop, the foundation of, of what this program is all about. But before I jump into it, I want to give you a quick little background on where the thing comes from. So my, my background is I've been a professional speaker for just shy of 23 years. I've spoken to over a million people in live audiences and over 2,000 audiences. And anytime you do something that you're not forced to do for 23 years, you tend to become a student of the game. You tend to uh, learn, research, read, watch the videos, do on the line reading and all that sort of thing. And I found that in this personal development, in this leadership realm, that every time I read something, um, certain themes kept on coming up over and over again. They were articulated in different ways, but the same themes kept on coming up over and over again. And so what I actually did is I started literally taking hundreds of these inputs and I tried to synthesize them and I created a concept called the 10-80-10 principle. So this concept is literally hundreds of different inputs of a bunch of other people kind of summarized together. And just to give you an idea of some of the things where I'm trying to incorporate in this, there's, um, there's a, an organization called Gallup Research and Gallup Research went and they interviewed 1.4 million managers in what was believed to be one of the, the, at the time, and still is to this day, the most extensive management research where they went and you know, asked what makes an effective manager and all this stuff. Um, 
and then they ended up writing three books on it. So a lot of this comes from there. And, and just to give you an idea of some of the questions they asked, they, they asked this one specific question, which I think is cool, and I'm not gonna answer the question. I'm gonna ask you to think about it, and then we're gonna go through the presentation. I wanna see if you change your mind at the end. So this is what they said. They took all the effective managers, and they asked this one question. The question was, you're a manager, and you have two, you're managing two people. And in the example that you're a sales manager, you have two people, and you have two territories. So the two employees, are the, there's the superstar, and there's the dud, and you have two territories, and there's the superstar territory, and there's the dud territory. And the question they asked was, how do you line them up? Do you put the superstar employee with the superstar territory, or do you put the superstar employee with the, the, the dud territory? And they found that almost exclusively all the people that were deemed to be effective managers answered the question the same way. And like I said, I'm not gonna answer it now, but I will circle back at the end, and if I forget, yell at me, and I'll remind me, and I'll, I'll do it. So this is kind of, this kind of comes into play with what we're talking about. Uh, we go back a little further. It, Jack Welsh in the, uh, in the early 80s, when he took over uh, General Electric, he talked about a concept, and he wrote about it in one of his books. He was talking about it, that he got more trouble for this concept than anything else that he'd ever said in his entire career. And the concept he called it differentiation. And differentiation, he said this. He said, every one of your employees is either an A, a B, or a C. He said, your job as a manager is very simple. Your job is to promote your A's, fire your C's, and spend all your time with your B's trying to make them A's. Right? And, and you'll see that when we get into 10-80-10, you'll see this framework. I like it, but I, I think what worked for him back then, times have changed and it's no longer the effective way of doing it. But there are elements of it that I like. We go back a little further. Um, most of you probably know Pareto Principle, but you likely know it by a different name. How many people have heard of the 80-20 rule? Right? The 80-20 rule says 80% of your results come from 20% of your efforts. Where does it come from? An Italian economist named Vilfred Pareto, just through sheer observation in Italy, noticed that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the people. Okay? He traveled throughout Europe, and he always found this ratio to be true. 80% of the land owned by 20% of the people. So he created Pareto Principle, and he started applying to everything. Uh, they say in business, 80% of your profits come from 20% of your clients. Uh, they say in the club world, 80% of your headaches come from 20% of your members. Right? Uh, they say socially, if you walk into your closet, you wear 80% of your clothes 20% of the time, which means you wear 20% of your clothes 80% of the time. It means you go home, you get out of the monkey suit, and you put on the comfy jeans. Right? So the point of Pareto principle is this, is there's a skewed relationship. One input does not always give you one output. One of the proper input gets you more bang for your buck. One of the improper inputs gets you less bang for your buck. Okay? And we go back even a little further. Uh, there's this for me, it came from ninth grade science when I learned Sir Isaac Newton's laws of motion. Remember these? He had three laws of motion. The first one said something to the effect of a body in motion tends to stay in motion, a body at rest tends to stay at rest. Sound vaguely familiar? Okay, I'm not making it up. He said it, not me. Okay. Um, what Newton said, in a non-scientific way, all he said was this. He said, action follows action. Inaction follows inaction. That's all he said. Uh, a body in motion tends to stay in motion. Action follows action. A body at rest tends to stay at rest. Inaction follows inaction. And he went and scientifically proved it and became a governing law of the universe we live in. And 400 years later, we still use the same stuff. 
And in that 400 years, people have proven it and reproven it and come up with different examples and uh, cliches to express the same sentiment, right? Uh, what is peer pressure? Peer pressure is the concept of action follows action and inaction follows inaction, right? We have cliches to express it. You've heard of the expression keeping up with the Joneses. What is that? That is, my neighbors bought a car, I want a car. Action follows action, right? Uh, we, we see it, I see it time and time again. I was actually asked to speak to a group. This has gotta be uh, 20 years ago. A group called Teens Tackling Tobacco called me up. And they said, Sanjay, we're running a big symposium, we want you to come and speak. I said, great, how can I help? They said, when you speak, we want you to explain the way peer pressure works. I said, why? They said, our research shows that young people start smoking, 90% of young people start smoking as a result of peer pressure. So we figure if they understood how the force worked, they might make different decisions. I said, sure, no problem. Uh, let's just make sure we have the same definition of peer pressure, because to me, peer pressure is action follows action, inaction follows inaction. And she said to me, yes, you say that. Wait, no, don't, she said. You're speaking to students. Don't say it, show it. It sticks better. Okay, I said I can do that. So that day when I went to the presentation with me, on stage I brought four chairs. And at one point in my talk I said, ladies and gentlemen, I need four volunteers. And I grabbed my four volunteers and I said, excellent, I want the four of you to stand in front of these four chairs. And they did. And I started telling a story. And when I got to a certain word in the story, Three of them sat down. And the reason they sat down is because, well, I cheated. Before my presentation, I went up to three people and I said, one, two, three, I need you three to do me a favor. In the middle of my presentation, I'm gonna ask for some volunteers and I want you to volunteer. I'm gonna ask you to stand in front of a chair and I want you to stand in front of a chair. I'm gonna start telling a story, get to a certain code word, and when I say that word, can you just sit down on the chair? And they went, no problem, no problem, no problem, thanks. Got to that part of my talk and said, ladies and gentlemen, I need four volunteers. A bunch of hands went up and I was like, how about you and maybe you and randomly you. And a fourth person that had no idea what I was doing. I said, excellent, I want the four of you to come and stand in front of these four chairs. And they did. And I started telling the story and I got to that certain word in the story and three of my volunteers sat down. Guess what the fourth one did? Sat down, why? Well, come on, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the chair was there, everyone else was sitting, why not sit? All right, when I'm speaking to students, there's a bunch of ways I can debrief this. I can say things like, you know, the beer was there, everyone else is drinking, why not drink? The cigarette was there, everyone else is smoking, why not smoke? When I want to bug them, I do this. I go, why don't we do this? The book was there, everyone else was reading, why not read? And they chuckle and it's cute and there's all kinds of nice little, little leadership messages that come from that. But what I found amazing is every time I've ever run that example live, I've always had some sort of an adult that was in the room, uh, an educator, a teacher, an administrator, some sort of an adult, will come to me and say something to the effect of, great example. Because in this day and age, the way peer pressure affects kids, it is such a powerful driving force, it is nutty. I, I sure am glad I'm not a kid. And then I kind of thought about it. Sure, I'm glad I'm not a kid. Does it mysteriously disappear? Is it like, hey, here's your high school diploma. Can I have the peer pressure back? Thanks, appreciate that. It doesn't go anywhere. So I wanted to prove a point to myself. 
I was speaking for an AGM for a health unit. We had a room full of 250 educated health professionals. Doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, smart, intelligent leaders. And like I said, I wanted to prove a point to myself. So I said, um, ladies and gentlemen, I need four volunteers. And I grabbed my three plants, and a fourth guy, who I did not know at the time, turns out was the director of the health unit. He was the biggest wig in that room. He had education, title, role. He was the man. So I said, excellent, I want the four of you to come and stand in front of these four chairs. And they did. I started telling the story, got to that certain word in the story, and three of my volunteers sat down. <laughs> Guess what this guy did? He didn't sit down, and he didn't keep standing. This is what he said. He said, hey, he told us to stand. Okay, then he sat down. <laughs> he recognized what he was doing was wrong and against the rules, but he still did it. Why? Because this simple notion, the simple concept of action follows action, and inaction follows inaction, transcends your form authority, how many years of experience you have, your education, how you part your hair, and what kind of a car you drive. Right? Action follows action, and inaction follows inaction. And I'm really beating this concept to death um, because it's the backdrop of this 1080-10 thing. But again, I, I, I see it time and time again. There's, um, there's a guy that was, would you agree sometimes people research really, really stupid things? This guy, when I was doing my master's, a professor sent out this research this guy was doing. He was studying the rate at which windows break in abandoned buildings. Fascinating. And actually what he found was pretty cool. He found there was actually a consistency between windows breaking. More specifically, he found there's the greatest amount of time between the zeroth window breaking and the first window breaking. So what did that mean? It meant you could have an abandoned building sitting there literally for, no years, uh, for years with no windows broken, and all of a sudden, one window breaks. And the, the rest quickly follow. He supported this idea of action follows action and inaction follows inaction. He found the same thing to be true about abandoned cars. An abandoned car is sitting there, no windows are broken, one breaks, and the rest quickly follow. My mother understood this concept. She used to say to me, Sanjay, if you're walking along and there are 10 pop bottles, pop, soda, what do we call them here? You don't care, just tell the story? Okay, uh, there are 10 pop bottles and nine of them are knocked over, but the 10th one is upright. There's a greater tendency for you to walk by and kick over the 10th pop bottle. The opposite is true though, she said too. There are 10 pop bottles and nine are upright, but the 10th one is knocked over. There's a greater tendency for you to straighten out that 10th pop bottle. And somehow my mother thought that was relevant to me keeping my room clean. <laughs> action follows action and action follows inaction. What is this? This is an example of organizational culture. I've had the opportunity in the last three or four years to speak to maybe 20 chapters in the CMA around, around the US. And I can tell you that that's a reality for clubs. There are clubs where they kick over the 10th bottle and there's clubs where they straighten it out. And I've seen, I've seen both extremes. Um, I, it's only because we're staying here in the Ritz, I, I would give you a quick example of when it permeates. It, you know, this is true of, if you take a, a brand new hire, first job out of, out of college, and you bring them into a toxic environment, what are they gonna learn to do really quickly? Be toxic. 
Because they're going to go, that's how it is. I figure that, that's, a, you know, action follows action. On the flip side, you bring in brand new hire into a dynamic, thriving organization, what happens? They learn to become part of that system. I was speaking in the Middle East. I was in Doha, staying at the Ritz-Carlton. And a lot of times when I speak, um, when I, especially when I have water, I peel the label off the water. Especially too when I'm doing full day programs, primarily because I always put my water places and I never remember where I do, so I always know which one's mine. Anyways, there they don't have any poured water, everything's bottled water. Um, and the guy was going around to refresh the waters at break. Okay? And I'm going to call him the water boy. And I'm, I'm using him purposely saying it in a facetious kind of way. So the water boy is replacing the waters. And he comes to me and he says, Sir, I notice you peel the labels off your water. I've taken the liberty of doing that for you. And he handed me the water, just so I would know it was mine. And that blew my mind because I can guarantee you there is no rule that said if someone is peeling the waters off their, la off their label, that you peel it off too. It was an idea of they understood the ninth pop bottle was knocked over, let's straighten it up. And that's how you create that organizational culture. How? Because action follows action, inaction follows inaction. And whether it's a positive or negative culture, both of them are just equally as hard to break. So this idea, action follows action, like I said, it's a backdrop of this 1080-10 concept. So what is this 1080-10 principle? The 1080-10 principle says this. You can take any group of people and you can subdivide them into three groups. Top 10%, bottom 10%, Majority 80%. Top 10, bottom 10, majority 80. Let me define each group for you. The top 10, by their definition, they want to be there. They go early, they leave late. They never complain. When you say jump, they say how high while they're in the air. Right? These are the people so motivated and excited by life, it is annoying. Right? They wake up in the morning, they go look at themselves in the mirror, and they get jealous. Look at you. That's your top 10. At the other end of the spectrum is your bottom 10. Who are they? Just the opposite. Uh, they show up late, but to make up for it, they leave early. <laughs> right? Always complaining. They got a serious, serious case of victimitis. It always rains when I go golfing. My spouse caught me cheating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Serious, serious case of victimitis. Uh, in fact, they suffer from a very serious medical condition, which <clears throat> I made up. It's called optical rectumeris. It's a shitty view of the world, yes? Okay. So you got your top 10, you got your bottom 10, and you got a big chunk in the middle called the majority 80. By their definition, they will go to whichever group is more empowered. Whichever group has more social influence and accolades will shift up the majority 80 or shift them down. So, if you're part of an organization where the top 10 is revered, where success is rewarded, where you're given accolades, attaboys, girls, and pats on the back, this is called a dynamic organization. Why? Because the top 10 gets empowered, the majority 80 falls them, the organization moves forward. If you're part of an organization where the bottom 10 is revered, where it's cool to cut corners, to manipulate the system, to cheat, to steal, to lie, that is called government. Sorry, no, that's a, uh, sorry. That's called a static organization. Why? 
because the top, uh, the bottom 10 gets empowered, they suck the life out of the majority 80, the organization gets stuck and goes nowhere. Okay, before I go any further, there's a few things I want to point out with this 10-80-10 framework. The 10-80-10 framework deals with the behaviors of human beings and therefore it is not an exact science. For rough numbers, give or take, there's 200 people in this room right now. I'm not saying there's exactly 20 in the top 10, 20 in the bottom 10, and 160 in the middle. Because based on history and size and culture, uh, that number might not be 10, 80, 10, it might be 20, 60, 20, or it might be five, 95, or for the mathematically inclined, it might be pi, 100 minus two pi, pi. But the point is, there's a top group, a bottom group, and a big chunk in the middle, okay? I say 10, 80, 10, because it rolls off the tongue better than anything else. So, but understand that there are factors that might not be, not ex an exact science. The other thing I want to point out is this, is when we're using this framework, we're not talking about people being top 10 and bottom 10. We're looking strictly at people's behaviors based on what we're measuring, right? I want to make the big distinction because as a human being, you live in all three areas at any given time in your life. You might be top 10 when it comes to your career. You might be bottom 10 when it comes to eating. And you might be majority 80 when it comes to relationships. Okay, so when we say, it's not fair to say someone is top 10. We say someone is top 10 with regards to being on time. Someone is top 10 with regards to creativity. Someone is bottom 10 with regards to showering or whatever, okay? So the point is, um, it's not people, it's their behaviors. Does that make sense? Okay, other thing I wanna point out is this, is every group, every group, regardless of size, regardless of history, regardless of culture, every group has a top 10 and bottom 10. It is not an absolute scale, it's a relative scale. Right, to further illustrate that, it's a bit of a silly example, but go with me. If we go to the leprechaun convention and we ask the leprechaun to line up according to height, is there a top 10 in that group? This is, this, this is the audience participation time. Is there a top 10 in that group? Okay, now if we compare them to the basketball convention, are they, in a, they have a top 10, but they're in different stratospheres. But relative to each other, both groups have a top 10 and a bottom 10, okay? Further to this, I want to say that top 10 does not mean good and bottom 10 does not mean bad. Top 10 simply means you exhibit the behaviors I'm looking for. Bottom 10 means you don't and it is not an assessment on the character of the individual. Because if what I'm looking for changes, the top 10 and bottom 10 can swap very quickly. Go back to the leprechaun convention. They've lined up according to height. Who's my top 10, tallest or shortest? Answer is, it depends. What are you looking for? Because if you're looking for people who can reach things off the countertop, your top 10 is your tallest. But within the leprechaun community, if like shorter is better stature, or you're looking for people who can walk into the chairs without bumping their heads, then all of a sudden, your top 10 are your shortest. And my criteria has changed, and it's not an assessment on who they are. Does that make sense? Okay, so top 10 means you do what I'm looking for. You may be a jerk or a saint, I don't care. Bottom 10 means you don't. You may be the coolest person in the world, you might be my bestie and my BFF, but you're still a bottom 10. Because what I'm looking for relative to that, you're a bottom 10. Does that make sense? Okay, so here becomes, oh, one last thing, is for this discussion, I use the term organization to mean a collection of people. An organization could mean your club, it could mean the members of your club, it could mean the staff of your club, it could mean your club as a whole. It could also be a family dynamic, it could also be your Tuesday softball team. A group of people, 
or an organization that I'm referring to just means any collection of people, and the exact same principle applies. So here it becomes the bazillion dollar question. You're in a position where you're trying to corral people to move toward a common cause. And you could be wearing, again, your family hat, your club manager's hat, it doesn't matter. Who does it make most sense to target? The top 10, the bottom 10, or the majority 80? And there's a great rationale for all three. You see, there's a thought that says, if I can get the bottom 10 to do something, I can get anyone to do anything. Think about this, you probably all have a, a colleague in the industry that would benefit from coming to one of these uh, uh, summer workshops. And you probably all have a colleague that would rather eat their own spleen than come, right? And the thought is, if I can get him or her to come, I can get anyone to go. So if I get below the lowest common denominator and I lift it up, I lift up the whole group. Seems to make sense. Okay, that sounds like a valid strategy. What about the majority 80? Majority 80, again, there's roughly 200 people in this room. If I can get 160 of us moving toward a common cause, I don't really care about the other 40. Because in that group, I've got you know, critical, critical mass, uh, tipping point. I've crossed the chasm, you know, insert business cliche here, but I got a whole whack of people. So this group seems to make a lot of sense. Now what about the top 10? Top 10, now, if you find you're spending your days only with your top 10 members, your top 10 vendors, your top 10 employees, your top 10 clients, would you agree, most people do agree, that their stress level goes down and their job satisfaction goes up? So the rationale is if I can spend time here, but empowering those people, and then what happens is they attract the majority 80, well then we move forward. So this group seems to make sense too. So here's the bazillion dollar, or here, just let's play it, play it out. The, we'll pretend the 200 of us are part of an organization. And the big wig, the executive director, the grand poobah, the CEO, the president, the board of directors, whatever you want to call him or her, comes to me and says, Sanjay, congratulations. And I go, uh-oh. Because you and I both know congratulations is Latin for, you just got more responsibility and not more pay. She says, Sanjay, congratulations. I go, what? She goes, you are now the project champion of the blood drive clinic we're running. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, your job is to get these people to give blood. Go. In this room, there's a 10-80-10 split to giving blood. There are top 10, bottom 10, and majority 80. Let's break it down. Who are the top 10? People who normally give blood. They're not good people, they're not bad people. Let, let me try that again. They are good people and bad people. It has nothing to do with them giving blood. I'm looking simply at the action. You could be a jerk giving blood and you could be a saint giving blood. Okay? Um, there are people that give blood, uh, that had a loved one that was ill, they do it for great reasons, uh, they see the benefit, it. Uh, they do it all the time, they give blood every day. <laughs> They're a little woozy, <laughs> but they give blood every day. Um, or they could be doing it for more selfish reasons, they give blood because um, they want a juice. I don't know, the point is they give blood. Okay? So top 10, give blood, got it. Bottom 10, don't give blood. Why? It doesn't matter. But I'll tell you this, there are great reasons and not so great reasons for not giving blood. Here's a great reason for not giving blood. Hey, I uh, just came back from Brazil. I may have contacted the Zika virus. I don't want to taint the blood supply. It's a great reason not to give blood. To the more selfish reasons. It's mine. Get your own. To everything in between. I'm scared of needles. I don't have time. I have religious objections. I'm really busy, etc. So. Top 10 give blood, bottom 10 don't, majority 80, 
I'm going to guess this, this is how most people in this room are, and this is how they fly. If your friends harass you enough, you will give blood. Hey, come on, we're, uh, we're, we're going to give blood. Oh, no, man, I'm just in the middle of this. I'm just not. No, no, you're not in the middle of anything. We made a pack last time. Was that this time or this time? Shut up, we're going, we're going now. Fine, let's go. Suck. But if your friends don't bug you enough, this is what you do. I want to. It's, it sounds like a great idea. I, I want to help. I'm, I'm in the middle of this. If it was tomorrow, I'd be totally all over it. <gasps> I'll tell you what. <clears throat> I will sign up next time, right now, and I'm totally 100% in for next time for sure. Top 10 do it. Bottom 10 don't. Majority 80, they're swayable. Fair enough? All right, so let's, let's play it here. Can I borrow your name, your name, sir? Edward. 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 So if Edward is a bottom 10. Actually, let me back up a second. Do we know who the bottom 10 people around us are? Let me ask it a different way. Think of a group of people that you interact with on a regular basis. Personally, professionally, socially, I don't care. In that group of people, if I said, who are the top 10 when it comes to being social? Can you answer that question? I'm seeing a lot of this, okay? And if I said, who are the bottom 10 when it comes to being punctual? Can you answer that question? And again, I'm seeing more of this. And if I said, who are the bottom 10 when it comes to showering? Don't point, but can you answer the question? What I'm getting at is this, is people don't wear signs, but it's pretty darn close. Because I know that every time I go, hey folks, we're having a blood drive clinic, Edward rolls his eyes and goes, oh, here we go, save the world. So with my amazing deduction skills, I assume he's the bottom 10. And this is how we treat and deal with bottom 10 people. We go, that's Edward. He's the bottom 10. I will win him over. And we go find the Edwards in our organizations and we corner them. And we motivate them. And we give them 45 minutes of our best material. Yo, Eddie, 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 how you doing? You want a muffin? How about a juice? How about a donut? Save a life, give some blood, go team, go. Woo, woo. 45 minutes later, does Edward change his behavior? No, is he even listening to me? No, he's doing a mental grocery list. He's like, I need butter, milk, eggs, vodka. He's waiting for me to pause so he can jump in and say, can I go now? In fact, targeting the Edwards leads to what I call the triple whammy. Three whammies. Whammy number one, does Edward change his behavior? No, we covered that. That's one whammy. Whammy number two, how do I feel? Yeah, I've just spent 45 minutes trying to convince him of something I'm excited and passionate about, and he pisses on me. Other than wet, how do I feel? Exhausted, frustrated, beaten up, ignored. That's whammy number two. Whammy number three, here's the most powerful one that most people forget about. How does everyone else around Edward feel? And the answer is ignored. You see, all this time and energy I was wasting with this energy vampire, this energy black hole, <laughs> no offense. All the time I was wasting with Edward, I could have been making a difference to the people around him. Instead, three whammies. Whammy number one, he doesn't change his behavior. Whammy number two, I get demotivated. Whammy number three, the people around him feel ignored. We can get to the Edwards, but it isn't through direct relationships. It's through peer relationships. Why? Because action follows action, and inaction follows inaction. And by the way, this is a bit of a tangent, a bit of a detour for me here. I'm going to rant for a second. If you're part of an organization that has an excessive, keyword's excessive, has an excessive number of, of rules, chances are it's a bottom 10 organization. Bottom 10 organizations have rules, 
top 10 organizations have values. What's the difference? I was in Denmark a bunch of years ago, and I had heard a gentleman who had taken over a bankrupt company and turned them back to profitability in a very short period of time. And he was talking about this, his experience in doing this. And he said, when he first took over, there was an operating policy manual for the organization that was this thick. He goes, I get it, you need rules, you don't need this many. And he said in the first year, he wanted to cut it down. He said in the first year, he knocked it down to this. And he said the easiest place for him to cut was in the travel section. He said, and, and some of you might be able to relate to this, hopefully not now, but from a previous life. He said, we had rules that used to say things like this. When you are traveling for work, you're allowed to spend $12.02 for breakfast, $18.04 for lunch, and $22.88 for dinner. I don't know about you, but if I'm told I can spend $22.88 for dinner, guess what? It becomes the game of the price is right. How close can you get without going over? <laughs> I want both showcases, right? He said, we had ridiculously obscure rules that said, you may buy a bottle of wine for a client in an odd month on a leap year following a blue moon. He said he literally ripped out dozens and dozens of pages of these obscure rules and replaced it with one line. The one line was, spend the money like it's yours, period. Spend the money like it's yours. He went from dozens of pages of rule to one value. Rules try to get to every possible con contingency of what you should and should not do. Values get to the spirit of what the rule is trying to say. People circumvent rules. People don't circumvent values. So if you're part of an organization that has an excessive number of rules, chances are it's a bottom 10 organization. And I, you know, it, it, it's funny because I'll give you a quick example. Okay. Yeah, we'll go there. Um, Generally, when you make the rules, they end up backfiring on you anyways. I was doing some work with, a, with an automotive manufacturing company. A lady comes up to me afterward and said, you know, that rule stuff, it really kind of hit home. I said, yeah, she goes, hey, let me tell you a story. She said, we used to have a very liberal policy here in our organization, and it was, if you were relocated for work, they kind of covered all the expenses. They you know, paid all the moving stuff, and they paid your mileage to move your cars, and all this, that, and the other. I said, okay, cool. She said, yeah, but then they created, the, one guy abused the rule. And that's what happens, right? Is when, is, when a rule's created is when one person messes up. And it's funny, because we even usually use their name. It's the Billy rule, right? And we see, like, uh, uh, for baseball fans, Buster Pose with the, the home plate collision, what do they call it, the, the Pose rule or whatever it is. But we do this all the time. So this, so here's the story. This guy was getting relocated, and he had a hobby. His hobby was restoring cars. So when he moved, he didn't move like two vehicles like most other people. He moved nine shells of vehicles. And they were like, had to get towed and all this stuff. And so the company gets this bill from moving his, uh, his vehicle. And what do they do? <laughs> and then what do they do? They go talk to him? Of course not. We'll make the billy roll. What's the billy roll? Moving forward, from now on, employees are allowed to move one vehicle. So rather than addressing the problem, they make a rule and they piss everyone else off. And I said, yeah, it sucks. And she goes, no, it's worse because it has the opposite effect of what they're trying to do. Why did they make the rule? They made the rule to save money. She goes, people will play by the rules, but circumvent the rules. The rule is, we'll move one vehicle, any vehicle you choose. She said, most of the families here are two-vehicle families. So what's, what does everyone do these days? Everyone these days, when they're going to move, 
they move only one vehicle. Which one? The tow truck that they rent. But they rent a flatbed tow truck that can put one car on there and the other one they tow. And by the time you add depreciation, hiring a driver, and the rental of the vehicle, it's actually more expensive than moving two vehicles. Well, we made the rule. They're playing within the rule. But if you go to the spirit of the rule, spend the money like it's yours, it's a completely different, it's a completely different discussion. I was doing some work with the government. And a lady comes up to me after, she's a manager, and she said, $12.87. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, that's our, sorry, she said $12.50. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, that's our rule for lunch. $12.50, that's what we're allowed to spend. I said, okay. She goes, the other day, an employee brought me a lunch receipt for $12.87, 37 cents over. I said, what did you do? She said, I signed off on it. I said, I would have done the same thing. She says, no. I said, what do you mean? She said, it came back to me. I said, what, what, what do you mean it came back to you? And she said, well, I sent it off to this person, and then they have, they have to double check, and they send it. And she started thinking, I said, well, hold on, hold on. And I apologize in advance, but I'm an uber numbers nerd. I have a degree in mathematical engineering, and this is my mind constantly works in numbers. I said, hold on, hold on, wait, 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 okay, give me a second. So employee fills out this, this form to submit the receipts, right? I said, yes. I said, okay, and then from there, it gives it to you, yes, and you spend how much time with it? And she said, whatever, and then, she, and then you send it to who? And then they spend how much time with it? And then she, I said, give me the whole circle. And then I said, now roughly tell me how much does each person make a year? And based on the amount of time they spent on it, I tried to track how much it was to track this 37 cents. $250. And, and so, so I've set, used this example, and, and someone said to me one time, no, 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 the idea, it's not to save the 37 cents. It's to save the person that tries to write off $10,000 for lunch. And I'm like, do you think she would have signed off on a $10,000 lunch? The system's already there. Either you trust your people or you don't. So the problem with too many rules is one of two things. Either you don't, the cost is not the rule. The cost is an enforcement of the rule. And if you don't enforce it, you're sending one message. And if you just create the rule, you're creating bureaucracy. But if you create a value, it's a completely different system. Sorry, and I, I ranted a bit. I didn't really want to go there, but I did. Um, so the bottom 10 approach leads to a triple whammy. Maybe not the most effective approach. What about the majority 80 approach? Majority 80, 200 of you, one of me. 200 of you, one of me. If I'm going to target 200 of you, I have limited resources, limited time, limited energy. So if I'm going to target 200 of us in our organization, I'm going to run through the halls of our organization, and I'm going to do this. Give blood, 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 give blood. Go team, go yay. Woo! Will people give blood based on that interaction? And the answer is not very likely. But in theory, I guess they could, but they probably won't. I don't think they will, but they might. And the reason I say that so indecisively is because the majority 80 is a very large spectrum of people. Right from I'm on the fence to convince me. The I'm on a fence people. You may pick up a few of these stragglers. Why? Not because of your relationship and your dynamics and your interaction, but because of the information. They're just as likely to give blood if they saw a poster on the wall, received an email, or had you run through the hall going give blood. You may pick up a few of these people. The rest of these people need what we call a transformational relationship. And one of the bases of transformational relationship is time. And you running through the hall going give blood, give blood, give blood, give blood, is not going to convince them. So targeting the majority 80, you may pick a few of these stragglers, but the rest of these people, uh-uh, you're not getting them. But you're moving, you're chugging, you're just chugging along really darn slowly. Okay, bottom 10 approach, triple whammy. Majority 80, you're moving pretty darn slowly. What about the top 10? 
top 10s, I say Chelsea. So if Chelsea's a top 10, I'm gonna go, hey Chelsea, have you thought about giving blood? And if she's truly a top 10, before I finish that sentence, before it's out of my mouth, she's gonna be halfway out the door going, where do I go, what do I do? I can get a free muffin, I'm totally in, hook me up, save a life, yeah, let's do it. I'm gonna give her the instructions, she's gonna go give blood, she's gonna come back and here's the best part. She will become a very champion of the behavior I was trying to instill in her and share it with other people. She will walk into that room with a muffin in one hand, a juice in the other. She'll go sit down at her chair, elbow both her neighbors and go, I just saved a life. And you can do this too. And he's gonna give them the instructions to do exactly what they need to do. So what's gone down? The top 10 got empowered. As the top 10 gets empowered, the majority 80 follows. Once 90% are on board, that's your top 10 plus your majority 80. Once 90% are on board, the bottom 10 does something that I think is actually quite remarkable. The bottom 10 breaks up into two groups. One part of the group goes, wait for me, I want to give blood. And the other part goes, what the heck kind of blood sucking organization is this? I'm out of here. And they leave. And either way, it's a desired result. It's the top 10 gets empowered, the majority 80 follows. Once 90% are on board, the bottom 10 break apart, some leave, some join, creating a new equilibrium. Then you know what you do? You re-10, 80, 10 the new group. You go, who's my new top 10? You empower them, the new majority 80 follows them, the new bottom 10 break apart, some leave, some join, stair-stepping you toward your, your desired result. People have asked me, well, where does this thing come from? Well, I gave you some of the background of where it comes from. I also mentioned to you, as, as a professional speaker, I've been in front of over 2,000 live audiences. You may find this hard to believe, but sometimes as a professional speaker, I'm in front of audiences and not everyone in the audience wants to be there. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. I'm sure I'm the only person in the history of the world that's ever happened to. What's the rookie mistake? The rookie mistake is we see that one guy hacking away at his iPhone and we see him and we're like, I see you. You're not paying attention. That's okay, my friend, because I will win you over. By the end of this session, we'll be skipping off into the educational sunset singing Kumbai frickin' ya. And we try to win them over. And we send them love. And we send them energy. And if it's a colleague, we bake them muffins and invite them to the office Christmas party. And you know what you're doing? Triple whammy. Three whammies. Whammy number one, does he or she know you're doing it? They have no clue. Whammy number two, how do you feel? Those are the days I go home and I go, honey, no one was listening. Exhausted, beaten up, frustrated. Whammy number three, how do you think everyone else around that person feels? Ignored. You want a great way to train audiences not to pay attention to you? Pay attention to the people that don't want to be there. I see it. So audience member is sitting watching the speaker. Speaker keeps looking at that guy over there who's not paying attention. The audience will start looking there. And there's some weird subconscious processing that goes on where they're like, oh, you keep looking at him? He's not paying attention? Ah, to get your attention, I gotta not pay attention. And then they kick out. You wanna engage an audience, one of the things sometimes a speaker tries to do is you try to make an audience laugh. What's the number one reason why an audience laughs? It's not actually being funny. Any guesses? It's hearing other people laugh. Why? Because action follows action and inaction follows inaction. This is why we put laugh tracks on our sitcoms. It's easier to hide your laugh in there when everyone else is doing it. I see it all the time. There are audiences, and there's that one person that laughs like really loud sitting in the front row, you know, and everyone laughs because they're laughing. But I've seen this too also when there's more of a conservative audience, people are laughing, but they're laughing silently. But they don't want to do it because no one else is doing it. So I want to engage an audience, I want to make them laugh. Do I tell the 
Bottom 10 guy, do I, I mean, I'm gonna tell a joke, do I tell it to the bottom 10 guy? He has no idea I'm telling the joke. Who do I tell it to? The top 10, do I know who my top 10 are? Yes, remember they flag themselves. People in this audience, I can see who you are with my top 10, you're leaning forward, you're smiling, you're nodding, you're taking notes. I tell you a joke, do you laugh? No. You guffaw, you chortle, you lose your mind. <laughs> oh, he's one funny dude. <laughs> they start laughing, the majority 80 starts laughing. They're like, <laughs> I'm laughing because you're laughing. <laughs> I don't even get the joke. 90% of the room starts laughing. The bottom 10 does one of two things. Either they go, what, what would you say, was it funny? Or they say, shut up, I'm trying to send an email. And they leave. In either way, it's a desired result. As the top 10 gets empowered, the majority 80 follows. Once 90% are on board, the bottom 10 break apart, some leave, some join, stair-stepping you towards your desired result. Every group has a top 10 and a bottom 10. Every group has a top 10. I, I learned this the hard way. I would get in front of audiences sometimes and I would be cocky. And I was like, oh man, they love me. I had the meat out of my hand. I'm so good. Let me see those evaluations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that four-letter word. <laughs> and I realize every time I get in front of a group, no matter what I give them, there's always going to be someone in the bottom 10 that finds no value in it. I can get up here and give you the secret to eternal youth and unlimited riches, and someone will sit in the audience and go, he did it in 38 minutes. He should have done it in 32. And they will find fault. And that's true of your membership, and that's true of every organization and your Tuesday softball team and your family reunion. On the flip side, there have been times where I've been in front of audiences and I'm like, I wish they would have shot me. It would have been way less painful. And I get back the evaluation that says, wow, thank you, what you said changed my life. And I'm like, were you at the same program I was? And I realize it's not a function of me, it's a function of them. I could get up here and bark like a dog for 45 minutes and they'll give me a standing ovation going, oh, it was the way he barked like a dog. And they find value in it. Both the top 10 and bottom 10 prescribe the philosophy, don't confuse me with the facts, my mind is made up. It's the top 10 gets empowered, the majority 80 falls. Once 90% are on board, the bottom 10 break apart, some leave, some join, start stepping you towards your desired result. I see this constantly, I see it in all different forms. Um, in 2008, when the economy took a big tank, I, I, I've always been sort of a, a fairly avid investor, I follow markets and all that sort of thing. And in 2008, I was listening to a program that they were talking about consumer sentiment and how, whether or not people felt like they had money. And I found it really interesting because this one particular survey or whatever tied the price of a particular commodity to whether or not people felt they had money. So as it went up, people felt squeezed, and as it dropped, people started spending more money. And it was the price of? Oil, gas, oil. Um, and again, remember I'm a numbers nerd, and I went, whoa, 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 this doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Okay, so I, I'm Canadian, so I'll speak American for you. I drive a car that's roughly 13 gallons. Oh, that's part of me, the tank is 13 gallons, not the car, <laughs> it'd be a small car. Um, the, the gas tank is 13 gallons. Now, if the price of gas was to jump up 50 cents overnight, would people whine and complain about it? Would it be the talk of every water cooler? Would people be bitching and, oh, it must be a long weekend, they're gouging us at the pump again, go on and on and on. Yes, you would agree, people do that. I drive a 13 gallon tank, if it, so if for me to fill up for an extra 50 cents, it would cost me an extra $6.50, are you with me on the math? Assume I fill up my tank once a week, 6.50 a week, roughly a dollar a day. So for a dollar a day, 
People will whine and complain like there's no tomorrow. Apocalypse is around the corner. We're all going in a handbasket, right? And people would just freak out. Okay, hold that thought in the back up with me for a second. How many people currently have now or have ever had in the past a mortgage? If the prime rate changes by as little as a quarter of a percent based on the terms of your mortgage, can it literally make tens of thousands of dollars difference to you? And the answer is absolutely. How many people know what the prime, is, prime rate is right now? How many people can tell me the cost of gas is right now? So why is it, why is it we track the dollar a day, but we don't care about the tens of thousands? And it has to do with the 1080-10 principle. Because when you drive through the city physically, what is the largest number you will see? How large are the price of gas signs? They're enormous, they're huge. How large is the physical print of the interest rate on your mortgage contract? <laughs> it's written in pencil and subappendix K is a footnote. And so we don't notice. But the th small things have changed and we do notice them. Why? One is empowered and one is not. Right? I see it constantly. I was speaking at a, uh, at a principals conference. This is a couple years ago. And I bumped into one of the principals six months later at a different conference. And she's like, hey, you're, you're the 108010 guy, right? I said, I am. And she said, that stuff actually works. I well, well thank you. That's uh, my career. <laughs> and I said, tell me your story. She said, well, I heard you speak. I said, great. And she said, and I was about to order smart boards. You know what smart boards are? These white boards and you can print and do fancy, crazy things with them. She goes, so uh, let, me, let me back up and give you, give you a bit of background. She goes, I have roughly 100 staff on my, uh, at my school. I said, okay. And she said, it's almost bang on 1080-10 split. She said, so I have, when I suggested we get these smart boards, I had about 10, what you would call top 10 teachers, that were really, really excited about it. They're like, this is amazing. Do you know what we can do with this? And they jumped online and started planning their lessons plan, and they went to town, and they were loving it. And she said, then I have about 10 that I call my 1487s, 1487ers. I said, why do you call them the 1487ers? She goes, oh, because anytime I ask them to do anything new, they fold their arms and they say, I got 1,478 days till I retire. Don't put this shit on my plate. <laughs> 1487ers, got it. Okay, good. And she said, and then I have 80, roughly, who were like, go with the flow. They're like, we get them, cool. We don't get them, all right, no big deal, whatever. Okay, she said, normally what I would do, and what I was about to do, was I was about to order smart boards for the school. I was going to buy 100 of them. And this is when, how it would normally play out. I would take my 100 smart boards, I would give 10 to the top 10 and set them free and let them go and run and do crazy things. And I would give 80 to the majority 80 and I would answer their questions. Yeah, what do you need? Do you need this? Okay, good. But, and then I'd give 10 to the bottom 10 and I would go to war with them and explain to them every day why they had to do this and it was important and mandate and we'd fight and get frustrated and tug of war and duke it out and da-da-da-da-da. She goes, that was my, that's the, the normal protocol. She goes, I heard you speak, I interpreted it differently, and this is what I ended up doing. I said, okay, we're gonna do the smart boards, but I only ordered 10. I bought 10 smart boards and I gave them to my top 10. And she said, right away, the first thing I noticed was the dynamics around this project completely changed. Because now all my conversations around smart boards were top 10 conversations. I had more time for these people, and they were showing me these cool things they were doing, this elaborate, cool, whatever, and they were right into it, really passionate, really excited about it. It was actually rejuvenating. And she said, exactly what you said would happen, happened. She said, 
Mrs. Anderson and Mrs. Smith, two teachers in the school. Their classrooms are across the hall from each other. Mrs. Anderson has the kids, and the kids are doing their thing, and she's giving them their homework. And she's, so Mrs. Anderson, by the way, is a top 10. Mrs. Smith is a majority 80, okay? She has a smart board. She's doing her thing. She, the bell goes, and the kids are like, oh, that's so cool, and they're talking, and they're kind of walking. They walk across the hall to Mrs. Smith's room, and they're like, oh, that was really cool. She, Mrs. Anderson did this, and she printed that out. She did that cool thing, and she's listening. So what are you talking about? Oh, well, she has the smart board. She's doing this, and she's like, hold on a second. Walks across the hall. She said the kids are saying, they, oh, really? I didn't know you could do that. She said within like two weeks, Mrs. Smith was in her office going, well, where's my smart board? So I ordered another one. And she said, I waited for people to come and ask, specifically ask me for them. She said, it's been six months. We have 63 smart boards out there. And she said, just last week, one of my 1487ers came up to me in the most sheepish way possible saying, when, 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 when am I getting mine? So I ordered them one. And she said, completely different dynamic around it. She, the, she said, there is a loss. There is a loss to this. She said, what I did miss out on was I didn't get my 100 purchase discount. And she goes, but it's a trade-off I'd make any day of the year. And she said, the other thing, too, is I only ended up buying 60, well, 64 of them now. And so I may not even need to buy 100. I would have wasted 36 more anyways. So the, the dynamic completely changes. What we want to do is identify who are our top 10, who are our bottom 10, who are our majority 80 are. What does this mean in the club world? It means this. Big mistake is, okay, so I'm, here's club X and club Y. Club X is us, okay, we're club X, and we have our top 10. We have our top 10, our people that are loyal, our, our Members that love us, who sing our praises, and that sort of thing, okay? And over there, this guy here is top 10 to Club Y. You with me? So they're a top 10 Club Y, which means they're loyal to Club Y, but relative to us, they're a bottom 10. Agreed? Not a good or bad person. They're just a bottom 10 relative to our club. They're a top 10 relative to that club. Yes? So I have this great idea as a Club X manager. I'm going to do a promotion. I'm going to give out $100 gift certificate for our restaurant, just to show it off and it's gonna be great. Who do I give it to? Top 10 or bottom 10? Well, a lot of people go, we already got the top 10. They're loyal, they come, they love us, they paid money, they're, they're, they're great. Let's try to get some leverage over here. So what do they do? They go give it to this person. What does this person do? One of a couple of things. Either they are, <laughs> I wouldn't be caught dead in Club X, and it goes to waste, or they pass on to someone who's not in your demographic and you're not interested, or they come and they use it, thanks for the free meal, and you never see them again. Any of those scenarios, it's wasted. Well, what's the other alternative? You give it to the, your top 10. What do they do? Well, first of all, are they going to feel loyal to you guys? Are they going to be excited? You've top 10, you've empowered them. What are they going to do? Next time they go to the barbershop or the hair salon or the uh, shopping mall or wherever they go, they're going to go, you know what my club did for me? They gave me this. So right away, you're getting that, if nothing else. Then two, maybe they go spend the money, or maybe they bring another couple that's new to the neighborhood into the restaurant to go, hey, this is our, these are our people, and this is how it all works. But either way, you're going to get way bigger bang for your buck by empowering the top 10. Because even if they're part of another club, even if they bring those, those people you would have given it to and they come over, they go, hey, my, my, my club doesn't do this for me. And you've put the first kind of straw on the camel's back. Maybe not the last straw, but it's the first touch point. And it's going to be much more effective coming from the top 10 than it ever is coming from the bottom 10. 
Both the top 10 and bottom 10 prescribed to the philosophy, don't confuse me with the facts, my mind is made up. The ability to focus on the top 10 or bottom 10 has nothing to do with resources, has nothing to do with money, has nothing to do with time. In fact, I'm gonna make this argument. I'm gonna make the argument that focusing on the top 10 versus the bottom 10 does not cost, like, you wanna implement this 1080-10 concept, you do not need to buy the book. <laughs> Although it is available for sale, we'll talk later. Um, you do not need to sign up for the coaching program. You're, there is zero financial obligation to try it. It costs you no money whatsoever. And I'm gonna make the argument it'll cost you no time. Because have you ever gone bottom tenning? Have you ever been in an argument with someone that even if you win the argument you lose because you don't get that three hours of your life back? And, and you, know, you, you try to justify it by standing on some sort of moral soapbox. You're like, no, 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 he needs to learn. No, no, she needs to understand that's not the way the world works. I'm saving mankind by educating this moron. And you know the funny thing is? They're having the discussion with you for the exact same reason. They think they're saving mankind by educating you. You're in a position where you're not gonna convince them and they're not gonna convince you. Why have the discussion, right? So I'm gonna make the argument that it costs no time, so rather than bottom tenning, step back from the conversation and all the time you would have Googled to try to convince that person, you go over here and all those resources you put here in the top 10, it'll cost you no time. So I'm gonna make the argument it costs no money and it costs no time, but dramatically different results. And there is a cost, because there always is. So what's the cost? The cost is in the perception. The cost is in sometimes bowing down to the biggest moron you know and saying to him or her, yes ma'am, yes sir, I'm not worthy of this conversation, you're too enlightened for me, I need to get my facts straight before I engage in, in, in conversation with you. Or sometimes looking like a jerk, going, I don't have time for this, get out. But that's what the cost is. The cost is in neutralizing that conversation. In fact, you want to implement 1080-10, you got to do what I call ACT, A-C-T, awareness, choice, time. Awareness, what do you got to be aware of? Three things and the first one's most important. The first one is, what is the desired result? What's the goal, what's the end in mind, what's, what is it you're trying to achieve? Because remember, if this changes, the top 10 and bottom 10 can change. Second, who's my top 10? Who are the people exhibiting behaviors that are supporting me and pushing me towards this goal? And third, who's the bottom 10? Who are the people that are pulling me away and slowing me down? Okay, so A stands for awareness. What do I want? Who's my top 10, who's my bottom 10? Good, C, choice. You're gonna make a conscious choice to do two things. You're gonna neutralize the bottom 10, and you're gonna empower the top 10. You're gonna neutralize the bottom 10, you're gonna empower the top 10. I'm using very specific words, I wanna explain what I mean by them. When you neutralize something, here's the key. You spend the minimal amount of time, energy, attention, and thought, so it no longer draws resources. I'm gonna say that one more time. You spend the minimal amount of time, energy, attention, and thought, so it no longer draws resources. This is not about fixing the problem. This is not about converting a weakness into a strength, changing their attitude, send them for anger management training. This is putting the minimal amount of resources, it slap the Band-Aid on the blood, plug the leaking boat, and quit wasting time on the bottom 10 because it will suck the life out of you before they ever convert. And it will draw every one of your resources before they ever convert. So minimal amount of time, energy, attention, and thought. That's how you neutralize. Okay, how do you empower? <laughs> the opposite. Maximum amount of time, energy, attention, and thought. That's how you empower. Okay, so A, awareness. Desired result, top 10, bottom 10. C, choice, neutralize the bottom 10, empower the top 10, and T, time. If you do this for a long enough time, you'll see a shift. That as the top 10 gets empowered, the majority 80 follows. And once 90% are on board, 
The bottoms can break apart, some leave, some join, creating equilibrium. The most powerful part of this framework, I think that I just shared with you is this, is not only does it work for groups of people, but it works for individuals. You take any dimension of your life and you have 10-80-10 behaviors. I'll give you a quick personal example. We'll go down the eating, health, diet, and exercise road. I used to be 200 pounds. And I know what you're thinking, the answer is no. It wasn't all muscle. <laughs> Jerks. Um, true story, my wife one day said to me, she said, honey, at which point I knew I was in trouble, and I was like, yes, dear. She said, you're like a motivational speaker kind of guy, right? Sometimes. Do you talk to people about making smart choices and living with the consequences of the choices they make? <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> How much do you weigh? 197 pounds. Are you making the smartest choices you could be making when it comes to eating, health, diet, and exercise? And she called me on it. And I love her to death for it. Because I'm a big believer of people who love us, they support us, but they also challenge us. And they challenge us in a way that makes us want to be better. Um, not out of shame or guilt towards someone else, but they tap into the values that are most important to us, so we want to do it for ourselves. See, my wife knows that one of my highest values is integrity. It's all about walking the walk. And she made me aware that maybe I was telling people to be their best when I myself wasn't. So I wanted to make a change. And I have a framework for doing it. It's called the 108010 principle. What do I got to do? I got to act. ACT, awareness, choice, time. Awareness, what do I got to be aware of? What do I want? That was easy. Get in better shape. Done. A. Uh, oh, then I need to identify the top 10. This was difficult. Because when I did an inventory on my life, I wasn't running marathons, and I wasn't an Olympic athlete, and I wasn't eating that well. And when I looked at all that, I was like, eee, I don't really know if I have a top 10. But remember, relatively speaking, we all have a top 10. So after kind of literally a week of writing down what I was doing, I realized that my wife and I would go for like 20-minute walks two or three times a week. Okay, that became my top 10. Bottom 10. Uh, this list was a little longer, um, which just meant I could pick. And I ended up focusing on what I thought was the biggest problem, which was the good old golden arches, McDonald's. Now, eating McDonald's is not a bottom 10 behavior. Eating too much McDonald's is. And I was in my own too much category. Okay, so oh, A, awareness, what I want, better shape, top 10, 20-minute walks, bottom 10, McDonald's. Now, I've got to neutralize the bottom 10 and empower the top 10. This is where most people get caught in the strategy. If people recognize McDonald's is the issue, this is typically what people do. They go, hey, I figured it out. Don't worry, McDonald's. McDonald's is the evil culprit, but don't worry, I figured it all out. I went online to a calorie counter. I'm still allowed to go to McDonald's. I'm on a calorie-restricted diet. I did the math calculations. It works out to 14 French fries, two sips of a shake, and three licks of a Big Mac. Then they go to McDonald's, they start counting up french fries and licking Big Macs. Here's the problem. You jump online, you do the calculations, you create a meal plan, you start a spreadsheet, you ration off the food, you're spending time, energy, attention, thought, and resources. You're not neutralizing that behavior, you're actually empowering it. This is the number one reason why so many people end up worse off post-diet than pre-diet. They spend all their waking moments obsessed with the bottom 10 and how they don't want it, and what they're actually doing is empowering it. So aware of this potential pitfall, I created an understanding with myself. The understanding was this. I will not eat at McDonald's more than once a week. Some of you are going, gross, once a week? Yes, that was a significant improvement. 
I will not eat at McDonald's more than once a week. This was not open for negotiation. This is not, a, oh, you're having a rough week, skip a week, double up next week, make up for it. No, the rule was not nearly as important as the headspace that went with the rule. I could own, I will not eat McDonald's more than once a week. That was neutralized, done. What do I do? I go over here to the top and I got to empower, I got to grow a 20 minute walk. How do you grow a 20 minute walk? 25 minutes. That was easy, did 30, didn't notice a difference. I thought I'll try something more intensive, I'll try running. I will run as far as I can. <laughs> and then walk the other 28 minutes. <laughs> That's literally what I did, I ran lamppost to lamppost. I remember one day running six lampposts going, tomorrow I'm doing seven, got to six and a half, didn't care, why? Because as I was playing in the top 10, the top 10 got in power and the majority 80 started following. What did it look like? It looked like this. I remember coming back from one of these run walks and my, broad, my body said to me, you're thirsty, drink some water. Sounds like a normal human physiological response. It was not mine. Mine used to go, you're thirsty. Mmm, root beer. You're thirsty, a ginger ale would be great. My body's cravings actually started to shift. I remember coming back from one of these run walks craving an orange. <laughs> I'd never craved an orange. What was going on? The top 10 was getting in power, the majority 80 was following. Then what happened? Once 90% are on board, the bottom 10 behaviors broke apart. Some left altogether, and others with behaviors conformed to the new reality. Then my wife made me do something really stupid. She made me run a marathon. 41.92 kilometers, 26.2 miles. Let me tell you, it is much, much quicker to drive. <laughs> if at the beginning of this exercise, someone had said to me, listen, you need to cut out McDonald's, never again eat a McDonald's in your entire life. This is what I would have said. I, uh, I can't, I, I choose not to. You know, you see, McDonald's is very inexpensive, and I travel a lot, and it's franchise. I know exactly what I'm getting. I'm not in horrible shape. If I really need to stop, I could stop, and I would I would go on and on and on about how I could, but I chose not to. The reality is I couldn't have done it. Why? Because I was living there instead of living there. If today someone said to me, cut out McDonald's, and by the way, I still eat at McDonald's. McDonald's was never the issue. I was. If someone said to me, cut out McDonald's, never again eat at McDonald's in your entire life. I could do it no problem. Why? Because up the street, there's a Wendy's. <laughs> Living in a different place. If the top can get some power, the majority 80 follows. With 90% on board, the bottom 10 break apart, some leave, some join, start stepping into your desired result. To implement it does not cost you money, it does not cost you time. It costs you attitude. You choose to do, do you choose not to. When we start talking about attitude, and I start getting really excited because there's this one word I love in dealing with attitude. The word is called chife. C-H-I-F-E, chife, and probably not everyone knows the word chife because, well, <laughs> I made it up. What is chife? Chife is the bottom 10 behaviors that get in your way when you're trying to achieve your goals. Frustration, aggravation, depression, mad, sad, bad, fear, shame, greed, guilt. And instead of going through life going, I feel frustrated, aggravated, depressed, mad, sad, bad, fear, shame, greed, guilt, I find it so much easier and it saves so much breath just to go, I have chife. <laughs> right, so I have a very simple philosophy in life and that's if you learn to neutralize, get rid of the bottom 10, then you can focus on the top 10 and good things happen. Does that make sense? Good, because I gotta warn you, I start talking about chife and I start getting really excited, sometimes I get really excited, I have to tend to talk really, really quickly. But in other more extreme cases, Sometimes I get, have this tendency to get my merds a little wixed up. Sorry, did it right there. I, I think I mean to say I get my words a little mixed up. The story I want to tell you, it's a Terry fail about a gittle Earl named Rindersella who lives at the hop of the till 
with her two Stugly Epp sisters. Doing it again. I think I mean to say it's a fairy tale about a little girl named Cinderella who lives at the top of the hill with her two ugly stepsisters. You guys with me? I don't have to land straight? Good. Tansapana Ein. They give this beautiful burl. Name Rindersella. She lived at the hop of the till with her two Stugly Epp sisters who were very fig and bat. Rindersella was this beautiful burl who every day had to chew all the doors. You know, like flop the more. Mop the floor, good, okay. And fight the liar. While her two Stugly Epp sisters sat around all day and did absolutely nothing. <laughs> Sorry, that was awkward. Anyways, as the gory stows, one day the Pransom Hints decided to have a huge haul and invite all the lovely ladies from across the land. Now, Rindersella's Stugly Epp sisters got to go, but Rindersella, she had to stay home and flop the more. There she was, flopping the more, feeling serivad, listening to the ladio when her favorite thong came on. And she started to dance to the deep. And the next thing Rindersella realizes, she had chossed her life. Translation, she lost her chife. She learned to neutralize the bottom 10 and focus on the top 10, and good things started happening. Why, what happened? <gasps> There's a huge puff of hoke. Huge puff of smoke, you with me? Okay, good. <gasps> There's a huge puff of hoke, and Rindersella's Gary Fodmother appears. And Rindersella says, Fully huck, who the huck are you? <laughs> Rindersella, I'm your Gary Fodmother. Faux knuck in way you are. <laughs> Anyone need a translation? No, we're good, okay. <laughs> Bet you never knew Rindersella was a potty mouth, huh? Rindersella, would you like to go to the Pransom Hintz's Buge Hall? And Rindersella's all like, uh, yeah. So she snaps her stingers. The next thing she realizes, cumpkins are turning into parages, heist into morses, and Rindersella's off to the Pransom Inns' Buge Hall, looking as ugly as liver. Sorry, that's as lovely as ever. Anyway, she gets to the Pransom Inns' Buge Hall. She sees the Pransom Inns from across the room. The Pransom Inns sees her from across the room. He's all like, Hadawadi. And Rindersella, she sees the Pransom Hints and she's all like, Bice nuns on him. And they aze into each other's guise and they nance the dite away until all of a sudden, ding dong, ding dong. Oh no. The mlock was striking Clidnight. Rindersella dashes outside the Pransomince's Buge Hall, and on the way down the stairs, she slops her dripper. 
oh, you sick, twisted people, get your minds out of the gutter. She drops her freaking slipper, okay? So the Pransom Hints picks up the slop dripper and says, Rindersella, Rindersella, bum cock. Bum cock, you've slopped your dripper. But it was too late. It was too late because Rindersella was gone. Aww. It was too late because Rindersella was gone. However, the Pransom Hints, being a fart smeller and all. <laughs> Smart fella, work with me here. The Pransom Hints, being a fart smeller and all, picks up the slop dripper, houses Morse, and lots across the trend, trying the slop dripper and all the lovely ladies. Eventually, gets to Rindersella's house, tries it on the two Sugly Ep sisters, <coughs> phone knit. Tries it on Rindersella, <gasps> perfect pit. They aze into each other's guise. They fall madly in love. Mott Gary, and live happily ever after. However, there's a stroll to the morning. I'm going to land straight. I'm going to translate. There's a stroll to the morning. There's a moral to the story. You may be a good girl. You may be a good girl. You may who your don't work. You may do your homework. And you may pay your sayers. You may say your prayers. But if you want to get away from your struggling stepsisters, if you want to get away from your ugly stepsisters, Life is what you choose. Chife is what you lose. Learn to neutralize the bottom 10. You take all that energy, time, thought, put it in the top 10. Empower the top 10. As the top 10 gets empowered, the majority 80 follows. Once 80% are on board, the bottom 10 breaks apart. Some leave, some join, stair-stepping you towards your desired result. I'm going to wrap this up in the next three minutes. A um, couple of things. Number one is... I did mention that I did bring copies of the book. If you are interested, I only have a handful of copies. Uh, they are here. This is the way we're going to do it. If you're interested, uh, I'll sell them for 10 bucks. If you want a book, leave 10 bucks, take a book. Don't take the money, just take a book. If you, want me to, if you want me to sign the book, I'm more than happy to do that. If you have a question and you want to challenge something I said, you are entitled to your wrong opinion and we can talk therapy. Um, if you are, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with clubs in uh, various ways um, in terms of helping them identify their top 10 or training staff on, on the first day. If you want to talk about stuff like that, I would encourage you to come and get one of my business cards. I have the coolest business cards in the entire world. They are decks of cards. Information's on the back. You don't care. Okay, that's cool. Um, they're magical? No? Okay. Um, they fly? You're a tough crowd. Okay. Um, <laughs> If you want a card, great. You want a book, great. You want to talk, awesome. Other than that, wait, give me one more minute. Uh, there's only just, uh, give me one, just one minute. It's, there's only 60 seconds in it. It's forced upon me, I can't refuse it. I didn't seek it, and I didn't choose it. But it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it, and give account if I abuse it. It's just one tiny little minute. But eternity is in it. The rest of your lives for thousands of minutes, thousands of eternities. Use each and every one of them. Focus on the top 10 and move towards your desired result. I'm Sanjay. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. This has been Education Elevated on the FLCMA Podcast Network. Download other episodes on a myriad of different topics for anyone in your club or organization 
regardless of their job title or description. We'll see you next time.